Blimey. Well, from what I can see, I was expecting about 20 people, so this is uh, a pleasant surprise. Good morning, everybody. Uh, uh, so I'm still Tim Minchell, and all I've got to do with you today is try and convince some of you that engineering is very important and a very interesting thing, but I hope for some of you this won't be a surprise. You'll know this already. Uh, so where to begin? What's the best way of doing this? Well, perhaps to start with... Well, one quick anecdote I have to say, which we'll lead, come back to at the end, and that is, as I sat being driven rather grandly here from Hereford Station, I was with some people who've written huh, quite a lot of books and were quite famous, and the conversation turned, and they said, Tim, what have you written? And there was an awkward moment where I, I was, well, nothing, really. Um, and so what I'd like to do at the end, perhaps, is, it's a bit cheeky, this, but if you think what I'm going to talk about today is of any interest at all, and you think it might be worth trying to write a book, we'd love to hear from you about that. Okay, so the little card you should have been given as you came in will take you to a website with lots of exciting video clips for all ages on there about what engineering is really about, but also a chance for you to say whether you think we should do this or not, or whether we should stick to something else. Okay, so about 50 minutes with some stuff for you to do addressing this particular problem I'm going to show you in a second, which is, I went into a primary school about two, three years ago, and um, I didn't know what to talk about, so I said to the children, can you draw me a picture of an engineer, please? And I thought, that would be great. So they'll draw all these wonderful pictures, and we'll then talk about the pictures, and it's um, bound to be interesting stuff, I'm sure. And this is the kind of picture I got back. I hope you can see that okay. Very nice pictures, done by some 10-year-olds in Cambridge. Um, at the Perth School, and they were pretty much all like this, very, very similar. As you can see here, we have uh, uh, an engineer that's clearly male with a big spanner fixing a car. There's one being fixed up there and one going beep, beep, driving away. Marvellous. Over here, rather sadly, um, indictment of the British rail system, the engineer is fixing the broken train. Okay? So again, you thought, well, that's, that's great. That's just a few of those. Another one, another one, and another one, and another one, and you thought, that's interesting. So 10-year-olds in a kind of a, a technology science uh, intensive place think that engineering is just about fixing broken stuff. And I thought, oh, I'm not sure it is. I think it's a bit more than that. It, partly this, but it's an awful lot more as well. I thought, well, where does this come from? So I was just standing at the railway station. I thought, where would they see engineering? And of course, if you can see this, the only time you see the word engineering associated with the extraordinary achievement of um, the high-speed rail, electrified high-speed rail network, any time you see the word engineering, it's associated with delayed trains, problems, and bus replacement services. <laughs> so you think, okay, that's, this is probably where it's coming from, to an extent. So you said, fine, we're going to do something about this. So what I'm going to do, as I promised in the... Um, uh, uh, the publicity material about this is just talk about 10 words. Clearly, I'm using a lot more than 10 words, but there are 10 little words I'd like you to remember from this. If you ever, everyone ever asks you, so what's this engineering stuff about then? Isn't that fixing broken things? You can say, no, it's much more than that. It's about these 10 words. So first of all, the first word I think really is about engineering is about inventing new things. So this is this process. It's very, very simple. It says, I have a problem. I've got a solution. Right? That's it. That's invention. It's a bit more complicated than that. But as a quick exercise, if I were to say now, for reasons a little hazy, I need to drop this camera out of a fifth-story window onto a concrete floor, and I don't want it to be broken. Okay? What could I do to stop this camera as it falls through the air 
from hitting the ground and being smashed. What could I do to this camera? Any ideas from anybody? Parachute, excellent. Yes, anything else? Cushions, yes. Anything else? Balloons, marvellous. Remember that, because we'll come back to this, and no, we're not going to drop my camera out of a window, but we're going to see what NASA did in a very similar situation that um, had some rather unexpected results. But there you go, that's the process of invention. I give you a problem, a problem presents itself, and you try and do something about it. And you come up with very creative ideas straight away. But of course, if I said, all right, let's build a parachute for that, let's get some cushions, let's get some balloons, let's do this, you'd find that it's actually quite difficult. How big is the parachute? Does it untangle at the right speed? Does it actually slow it enough so it doesn't smash onto the ground? You put your cushions down there, how many? What if the cushion's not in the right place? So actually doing it is quite tricky. But that's what engineers do. They don't just say, I've come up with the idea, time for a cup of tea and I'll go home. They have to go on to the next bit. And this is complex mathematical model which explains it, which is question mark, light bulb, red arrow. Right? That's the doing bit. To give you a quick example, quick example of this, what's this? Helicopter made by, or drawn by, Da Vinci. Oh, I'm speaking to the converted, this is great. Now, he was a genius, no question about that. A real polymath, a man who could do everything in a sickeningly good way. But back then, he didn't have the right materials. He didn't have the right technologies to actually make this work. So he was a great inventor of this, but not the person who made it work. One of the people, first people to make it work was this man here, Dr. Igor Sikorsky. And there is one of the very, very first, not the first, one of the very first helicopters. And you can see, slightly different health and safety environment. He's wearing his trilby hat there, <laughs> which afforded great protection, I'm sure. And it might be rather fun if I just show you a quick newsreel of him testing his helicopter. Now, if you just think, if you were testing a very unstable, very new uh, technology that went up in the air and was moving around a lot with big whirling blades, probably the last place you do it is next to a big tree. <laughs> so just watch Dr. Sikorsky and where he chose to make this actually happen. Oh, this is going to work. One quick attempt. Right, this should be it. America sees another new marvel of aviation. Why? Sikorsky helicopter. The takeoff, 90 degrees straight up. This experimental model, a veteran of hundreds of test flights, goes aloft to attempt to break the world's endurance record for flight over one spot. Now, to be fair, of course, the reason he's doing that is to show how much confidence he has in the technology. Notice his engineers are standing over there going, I don't think this is a good idea. <laughs> so, if we move on. So that's the idea of doing stuff. But, of course, you don't just, engineers don't just do it and then stop. They do this other thing, which sometimes sounds a bit boring, but is actually equally important and equally, if not more, challenging, and that's to improve things to a point where they're actually usable in many different ways, much more reliable. If you go back to Dr. Sikorsky's helicopter, I think few of us would be happy if he said, want to come for a ride with me? I mean, it's just so, so uh, early-stage technology. So engineers are very, very good at this thing, of improving. So if you just look, there are four helicopters that all use exactly the same technology as Dr. Sikorsky came up with, and they've done it in a... Now, <laughs> every time I show this and I try and name all these helicopters and give the correct code numbers, oh, I get emails. I get uh, either from Air Force officers or collectors, so I'm not going to... There's a very big one with two blades there. <laughs> there's one you see rescuing you on the beach there. There's the one you'll see whizzing along very fast to rescue people who've been in traffic accidents, and there's a nice little one that people can learn to fly in. So 
Each one of those is very, very different, but each one actually uses the same technology as we saw on the previous slide. So this is a big thing about engineering, is this ability to improve. Now, as I squint and look at the audience, I can see there's a certain age range here. So some of you will just go, why are you saying this? Others may look a bit blank. So, if you were out and about 30 years ago and you needed to make a phone call, what would you do? <laughs> phone box. You would go out and you'd find one of these. Very simple, they used to be on every corner. They were deliberately painted bright red so you could find them easily. You would, depending on your age, and again, I must be very careful here, you'd either take <clears throat> a penny, two pence piece, five pence piece, ten pence piece with you. And I think some of us remember being taken to the phone box for the first time and saying, if you get into trouble, this is how you call. All right? Now, of course, we don't do that. We do something very different. So could I just ask quickly, if you have a mobile phone and it's readily accessible to you now, could you just get it out and hold it in your hand? No, no thing required. I'm not going to be forcing you to download any apps or anything. Don't worry. Just look at it in your hand, okay? So think you've got that, and 30 years ago we had this. And there was a little intermediate stage, which I quite like, which was this stage. So the engineers said, mobile phones, let's have a mobile phone. So this is rather magnificent, this. Quite rare. I actually have an even bigger, older phone, but it's too big to carry with me. So here is an early Nokia mobile phone. Bear in mind, this is not the phone, this is the phone. Okay, so you had to carry this around. So of course, these were, because they were so heavy and so big, and yet this was one of the smaller ones, they were fixed into your car. Okay, so that's why we have the car phone warehouse, because that's where phones were to begin with. But of course, Nokia said, well, it's great if you have it in a car, that's a useful thing, but better to carry it around, so as you can see, they produced this rather attractive bag to go with it. So you would then carry your phone around like this, which of course, yeah, very nice. So the engineers could have said, look, you wanted a mobile phone, you don't like phone boxes, we've made a small phone. We can stop there. But of course they didn't. They made it smaller, still pretty huge. Amazingly, it only does one thing. It only makes phone calls. So I suspect some of the younger members of the audience are just going, what? Why would you buy something that only makes a phone call? How, what's the point? At that time, everything was about size. They tried to make it smaller and smaller, and they had this one, which is rather satisfying. I don't want to talk to you now, and you could do this. Very good. They put this on, which had no functionality other than to make people think it must be working. It's got an aerial. <laughs> True. So, they did all that, and what I want to just... The reason I asked you to get your phone out is... You look at what you've got there. It's got, I couldn't even count how many functions it's got on it. But the fact we've gone from that to this, very clever, from this through all these stages and many more to this extraordinary piece of technology you have in front of you now is all down to engineering and this idea of improving what we've got. So the improvement word, I think, is one of the most important in engineering. It's not the, the clever bit's been done, now let's make it a bit smaller. The improvement thing is absolutely critical. Now, it sounds a bit sort of, ah, oh, that's nice, he's put the word share up here. But this is a very, very important concept for engineers, because nobody, however many GCSEs, A-levels, PhDs they've got, no good engineer of any description ever does anything on their own. Good engineers know that the knowledge is out there amongst a huge number of people, and the smart engineer is the one who brings these skills together. They share their experience. So I just took some random photographs of some of our students at work, 
doing projects with industry, and you can see very clearly what you get from this, hopefully, is they're always solving problems together. They always together find a way to address a particular need. Be it, how do I make this robot work properly? How do we design this thing better? How can we sort out the Air Force supply chain problems? Or how can I design this better little object? And if we look at another picture, this is our solar racing team. Again, they're building and just built, in fact, yesterday, tested the new solar racing car for the first time. It worked, thankfully. But if you look at them here, everything is done in teams. Okay, they're not necessarily smiling or happy about being in teams. I quite like this photograph here, top right, which looks suspiciously like they're saying, hang on, we built it, but the door's too small. How are we going to get it out? <laughs> it wasn't. There's a door the other way, I should point out. Um, the point is, it's about sharing. It's about working in teams. The other word I like is this one, the word shape, to actually transform something from one uh, manifestation to another. Okay, what was... Uh, a particular shape or a particular composition, we do something different with it to make it into something that has other functionality. So if I were to say to you, imagine you are working at Ardman, of course, being an engineer in Britain, I have to put up a picture of Wallace and Gromit. That's just, that's obligatory. Hey, good. But imagine you buy a, a packet of plasticine, it comes in strips, and you've got Wallace and Gromit there. So what do you do to the plasticine to make it into Wallace and Gromit? What are, the, what, are the, what are the things you're doing to that material? Second? Shaping it, yes. Rolling it. Anything else? Manipulation, yes. But if you were to... Yes, yes. What about... Do you ever... Is, are you just changing its shape, or are you removing and adding things to it? You're creating. How do you put the eyes on Gromit? You're adding. There we go. You add things to it, and maybe you want to remove that gap so that um, Wallace has got the correct number of missing teeth. You take things out. So you put things in, you take things out, you do additive, you do subtractive, and the words you described before are all about deformation. You're changing the shape of it. Right? Now, those are very important for plasticine and for Play-Doh and for cake baking and all these other things, but also exactly the same basic engineering principles, these shaping principles, apply to the making of things like this. So there may be some aerospace engineers in the room, so I'll be very careful what I say. I'm not an aerospace engineer. I believe that this is a, well, I know it's from Rolls-Royce because we've got the photos from them, a wide cord fan blade. So it's a very, very, very clever piece of metal shaped in a very, very particular way using deformation, additive, subtractive. All of these words are used there as well. And what's interesting is it has to be incredibly strong, but on an aircraft, you also want it to be incredibly lightweight. So you want it to be a certain shape, and you don't want it to be too heavy. So how can you take a solid shape and make it lighter, do you think? What can you do to it to make it not so heavy? Any ideas? Make it hollow. Make it hollow. Brilliant. So this is what they do, and it's terribly clever, this. You, it's very, very special material, first of all. You then... Um, it's got a gap between it, a very thin gap, and you put it into a furnace, heat it up, and then you inject gas into it, so it inflates. And then you twist it as it inflates to exactly the right shape. This is terribly clever stuff, and it works immensely well. That is, has an unbelievable level of strength to it, which is just as well, because they stick those into that, and they hang four of those under a wing there. Again, for those who are not familiar, just... just that's, hmm? Big, very big engine, huge engine, traveling at enormous speed. Now, I'm going to show you something that reinforces a point about when you're shaping material, if you make Wallace with a slightly 
I don't know, wonky ear or you have a grommet who's a bit, you know, not quite right, that would be unfortunate and of course they just make him again and that would be fine. But if any one of these is not perfect, something slightly more dramatic will happen. And again, I'll stress this point, for any nervous flyers in the room, what you're about to see is actually very good. You might not think so, but it's very, very good. And I'll perhaps explain why before and after, so I don't get accused of terrifying people unnecessarily. And that is, if one of these engines fails because one of those blades has failed, because it has a little crack in it, it's not quite the right shape, something spectacular happens, and that must be controlled. So it could be that maybe um, the engine falls to pieces, but what you want is when something is spinning around very, 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 very fast, what you don't want is any of those bits to fly off and shoot through into the fuselage, the body of the aircraft, because that would be, well, very bad. So what they do is, before they're allowed to put it onto an aircraft, they do this. They get a test engine, and they get one of the blades we just saw being made there, and they... Imagine they, they um, put a little explosive charge in to simulate what would happen if there was a crack in the blade. Would you like to see what happens when the engine starts up? I thought you might. So apologies for the quality of the video here. This is what happens when an engine test happens. So again, remember how big that engine was with the person standing next to it? Again, just to remind you, there's the, the guardrail. If someone was standing there, they'd be about, you know, about yay high. So it's a big engine. And this is what happens when a big engine is going at full speed and they decide to trigger a little explosion. They're ramping up to full power. You might just be able to hear a countdown, and you'll notice a tiny change happens. Here, here it comes. Now, you may go, I'm never flying again. But the point is, that was a successful test. Because one thing you'll have noticed is that all the flames and the bang and all the bits of material and the amusing clinking sound afterwards, how many million pounds were just destroyed there, all the force went out the front and the back. Okay? Nothing, no bits of metal shot out sideways. So the aircraft would have suffered, perhaps the passengers might have noticed their gin and tonics bouncing a little bit on their tables, but basically the aircraft would have been fine. Big jolt. And then they've got three other engines, or one other engine, they can land on. Absolutely fine. No damaging stuff exited that engine in a way that would cause any harm. So the plane could land quite safely with that. And they have to do this test before they're allowed to put the engine on the aircraft. So shaping is not just, you should do it well, you should do it really, really well. But, little, not tangent exactly, all part of the same story, what I want to show you now is that there's actually a very new, it's not that new, it's become a very exciting way of making things now, which goes beyond doing very, very clever stuff with uh, plasticine and with uh, titanium and other exotic alloys. There's a new way of making stuff that's going to change our lives, I think, in ways we don't know yet. So at the moment, if you want to go and buy a model helicopter, a camera, a phone, probably a glass, maybe not a table, but most of the things we have around us, littered around here, would be made in a place far away, because it's cheapest to make things exactly the same in very, very high volume, make lots and lots of the same thing. And for various reasons of economics we don't want to go into now, that is often at the moment done in a place very far away from the UK, typically in the Far East, where costs are lower for manufacturing. So you see a little story happening here. 
Lots of people working very, very skillfully to make very, very precise goods, which are then packed up into small boxes, packed up into big boxes, shoved onto containers, which are then put onto big ships of thousands of containers, which are then shipped all the way around the world, hopefully avoiding um, pirates in the Straits of Malacca or off Somalia. They uh, avoid sort of crashing into things so they don't leak oil. They consume an awful lot of energy, but they're a big, big thing, surprisingly efficient at what they do. When they get to the other end, someone takes the container off the back, sticks it onto the back of a truck. The thing you want, you get in your car, you join the same traffic jam, probably, as the container that's been taken to the shop. The containers are unloaded, the box is taken out, the thing you want is then taken and put onto a, into a showroom, and you walk up there and go, yeah, I don't really want that one. So the whole thing has been, in some ways, a phenomenal waste of effort, and you have to say, well, it's not quite what I want, but I'll have to buy it because that's what's there. There is, of course, as some of you will know, a new way of doing this, which is just getting to a point of real interest. And this new way of shaping stuff is called additive manufacturing, going back to the adding subtractive bit, also known as 3D printing or digital fabrication. And we're doing some work on this at the moment, but maybe the best way of showing you very simply what it's about is to show you this video clip. Now, about halfway through the video clip, reality stops and fantasy starts. Okay, but you'll see pretty clearly where the reality stops and fantasy starts. So I'll just show you this. It's just a couple of minutes long. And this is the process of 3D printing using plastics. Basically, it's you um, build objects up layer by layer. And you can do very, very complex, interesting shapes by doing it. So here is, it is an advertising uh, uh, video, but I'm not connected with this company in any way, shape or form. See that 3D picture is being built up layer by layer by layer by layer. It takes a few hours. All right, this is where it stops being real, you might have spotted. So of course, a 3D printed man, first thing he's going to want to do is to build some 3D furniture for him to sit on and watch TV. missing.
There you go, right, so clearly we're not quite there yet, but that illustrates an important point. Now you can see how 3D printing works. It builds up layer by layer any shape that you can imagine. Key thing to remember, though, is they don't actually come to life, obviously. The other thing is, you can see it's, a lot of it is made, will be based around plastics. You can make it out of plastic, you can do it this way. Much more expensive machines are needed to make things out of metal, but you can do that as well. And the aerospace, defence and Formula One industries do use this technology for much uh, stronger parts. The other thing is, it's incredible what you can make. So this was a fascinating example of about two years ago now, where someone said, here's a Stradivarius, why can't we print an exact replica of it? Now, of course, you'll see you're not printing the strings or any of the, the bridge or anything like that, but it is a 3D-printed exact replica of a violin from several hundred years ago. And it wasn't just done to make it look nice, it actually plays. I know nothing about violins, but I thought that sounded all right. So, you can make incredible things with this, and we're still just now discovering what can be made. So, bringing us back to uh, the main story here, bringing us back to the main story, these machines you can buy now. You can buy very, very cheap, slightly hard to set up ones for probably two, three hundred pounds, but they need a little bit of love and care. You can buy this very popular one for about two thousand pounds, and you can print things like that with it. All those materials can be printed with a 3D printer. But you're going, oh, 2,000 pounds, that's still very expensive. And yes, it is. But then think, not that long ago, again, looking at the demographic here, a laser printer used to be a thing costing well over 1,000 pounds, and now they cost less than 100 pounds, less than 50 pounds. So these things, when they come along, if people will use them, they'll get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And of course, every child's dream is to have this thing they like to call the Santa Claus machine. You tell it what you want, and it prints it for you. There's all sorts of issues around um, how these are going to be used. Coming back to the main story, though, building. So engineers don't just shape the material and do clever things with it. They actually build great things, examples being that. So there you go. That's I don't know how many million individual parts transporting uh, several hundred people at several hundred miles an hour around the world through the fact that engineers working on engines, working on aeronautics, working on electronics, working on avionics, working on video systems, working on climate control systems, all work together to build that extraordinary aircraft, which I'll show you a little more of uh, a little bit later. They also do incredible things like that. Anybody recognize this one? Yes, the Milau Viaduct, Milau Bridge, one of the, I forget, it's the longest or the high, highest, I think. It's remarkable. They also do things like this that some of you may uh, have seen, so the Shard Building is an extraordinary achievement of engineering as well. So engineering isn't just about making the little components, it's about assembling all of these things into something quite remarkable. Then we get on to the slightly wackier and wilder words, the why word I really like. So engineers, good engineers, are a bit like slightly whiny toddlers. They're always asking why, and why is it like that? I don't understand this. Why can't I have this? Why can't I have that? And a great example is this. 
Some of you may remember this, some of you aren't actually using it, but here is an Anyway Up cup. Okay, they're brilliant, and if you know how they work, the idea is if you give a toddler a, a cup normally and say, now, be careful, don't spill it, you know, whoop, fall on the ground. They then made some with mechanical lids, and they said, when you finish drinking, remember to put the lid back on. Oh, okay. And then, whoop, right? doesn't work. This was a great example that from um, this lady here called Mandy Habeman, where she said, there's a longer story behind this, I think I can do something better than that. It should be completely intuitive to use, so there's no thing you have to do other than the natural thing of drinking. So when you put this, so you tip it upside down, nothing will come out. You put it to your mouth and suck, and water or whatever drink comes out of it. When you're finished, you take it out, and it doesn't leak. Very, very clever, driven by her saying, why are the cups that are there at the moment so rubbish? So again, engineering is not just about the great aircraft and Formula One cars and software and buildings. That's absolutely engineering as well. Working out the problem, working all the way through to say, why is it like that? I reckon we can do it better. Then there's another nice word I like. This is a very positive word to me and something we perhaps are drilling out of uh, younger people a little bit as you kind of learn towards a test, but the role of making mistakes is terribly important. I'm sure none of the younger people in the audience ever make mistakes, but it actually is a very good thing. So I'm going to give you three mistakes, and some of them, uh, they're all positive in a different way. So this is a marvellous thing called the Genesis probe, and it was sent out into space a few years ago to, don't worry about the details, basically go off uh, past the moon, gather some samples, and come back again because most of NASA probes, NASA's probes go out and they just keep listening to them until they disappear very, very far away. This one was different. It had to go out and come back. So, remembering our little thought exercise of how do you drop a camera on the floor without breaking it, the NASA engineers faced exactly the same problem. How do we stop this very expensive, beautiful piece of technology from going wallop into the ground at great speed? So, of course, they, they had the same thought process you did. First one was, let's just have it, uh, as it comes back through the atmosphere, we'll trigger a parachute, as they do with, with space capsules generally. And they said, yeah, but it's still going too hard. Have you ever seen one of the Russian um, landings? So, you know, the American ones land in the sea. The, uh, the Russian ones always landed on the ground in Kazakhstan. And you can see it's a bit of a wallop. And they went, hmm, quite delicate scientific equipment here. I reckon we're going to need to slow it down even further. So this is great. So the, it comes down, deploys parachutes, still going too fast. So they rang up some people in Hollywood and said, you've got some pretty neat um, stunt pilots. Do you reckon you can catch a falling object from, from, by parachute? And they went, uh, why not? Sounds like fun. So they got this, they tested it, and it works. It worked really well. So the engineer said, brilliant, we've solved the problem. The camera won't get broken. The multi-million pound space probe will be coming gracefully down to Earth, captured, and then just placed perfectly on the ground. So... Off it went, did all that, coming down, they're watching it, and that's what happened. As you can see, it's not really a very evidence of a very gentle landing. What actually happened is the engineers made a little boo-boo, and the little mistake was that component there, not the pencil, the bit underneath it, this pencil's there for a sense of scale, very important component. It tells the spaceship, the, the probe, which way is up and which way is down. Okay, you see where this is going? One of the engineers had put it in upside down. Okay, so the thing was belting towards the earth, and the computers were going, I think it's time to deploy the parachutes. As soon as we get this signal, we'll deploy the parachutes. Yep, no signal. Apparently, we're still going up. Oh, this is fine. And so, boof, into the ground there. Uh, helicopter pilots going, well, we're not going to catch that. Now, this is an interesting example of engineering. That, that's an operational error. It was put in the wrong way up. 
but it should have been, a good engineer would have made it impossible for the thing to be put in upside down. That should not have happened. And they've learned from that, so future ones are foolproof, literally. Other examples of experiments are this. So any engineers in the room who've studied engineering will recognize this particular video here from the 1940s. It's a bridge. And we'll see the bridge being opened rather grandly. Sorry, the quality of the video is not very good. All very exciting, and then the wind starts blowing, and this happens. And they go, you see people are still walking across it, going, oh, this is fun. Um, and then it starts twisting as well. And they go, yeah, this isn't fun anymore. And you notice there are no cars driving across at this point. Although a nervous person just says, oh, I'll give it a go. It can't be that bad. And then it starts to really wobble quite a lot. And this is real. This is not a simulation. And they, the great thing was they filmed all this because they, they realized it was quite important. And at this point, they said, yeah, we probably should close the bridge now. I don't think this is safe. And you can see it wobbles and wobbles and wobbles. And then very shortly, something quite dramatic happens. Oh, yes, this car was stuck in the middle. So this man decided to go and get it back or actually to rescue the dog that was inside. And, oh my goodness, yes, and then that happened. Okay, so brilliant bridge, uh, very nicely designed, one of the longest and thinnest at the time. It failed because they didn't quite understand the limits of what they were doing. Now, that's a very bad thing, nobody died, which was good, but the lessons from that feed into the design of every single bridge you see now. So that would never happen again. So engineers are very good at this. Mistakes happen, you try and avoid them, but when they do happen, you learn from them. You don't avoid them. Well, Try and avoid them. When they happen, though, it's not a, that person needs to be sacked. You move on. Another example of which is this. Now, does anybody ever use one of these or even know what it is? A Newton. Ah, I'm amongst friends. So, this was designed by a young... Well, a, a team of engineers at Apple designed this particular device here called the Apple Newton back in the 1990s. It was one of the world's first pen-based handwriting recognition computers. And if I can just grab a, uh, here it is, my little stylus. You switch it on, and it says Newton. And if I write the word, the word hello in natural handwriting, I then wait for a minute, and it converts the word scribbled hello into text, so it recognizes my scribbly handwriting. That's very clever. But it took about a second to recognize that word. Okay, so this was very, very, very clever at the time, in 1992 but it was just not what people wanted. It wasn't good enough. So it recognized you. It, it was a device that was supposed to fit into your pocket. Okay, slight, yeah. Um, and it recognized your handwriting. You could scribble down notes and put them in your very big pocket. People pointed out there was a competing technology for this. <laughs> yeah, quite. So the, this was competing, costing 600 pounds against a piece of, a, a little notebook costing 50p and a pencil, right? So there was no obvious need for this at the time. But, this cost Apple several hundred million because it was a complete flop, but the people who designed that moved on through Apple. They weren't sacked. They learned from their mistakes. And it's the very same people who went on to produce the iMac, the iPod, the iPhone, and the iPad. It's the same large, some of the engineers are the same ones. So again, learning from mistakes is terribly important. But also, pushing the boundaries is very important as well. And this technology was just a little bit too far ahead of its time. But that's, that's how progress happens. So, we've ended up with that. Now to the uh, penultimate word, this one. I love this. The fact that engineers, good engineers, like everybody, loves a sense of competition and a challenge. 
So, of course, we've just had the Olympics, and every look at the viewing figures for the Olympics. It's just staggering how many people were there cheering people on. It is brilliant. So what has been noted is you can channel that same energy into making people do clever stuff, to make engineers perform better. And one of the best examples is this. So uh, John F. Kennedy making that famous speech back in the early 60s, I believe that this nation, United States, should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon. At this point, all the engineers in the US went, yay, this is absolutely brilliant. He's going to give us billions of dollars to build huge rockets. We're going to have such fun. Oh, this is fantastic. Love it. He went, oh, hang on, finished yet. And returning him safely to Earth. <laughs> went, ah, now, come on, that's a bit more difficult. Because uh, engineering mindset, just you want, a, you want a man on the moon? Fine, we'll just fire one there and he'll land and that'll be okay. So, of course, they ended up building this massive rocket, which is extraordinary feat. Of, uh, it's just unbelievable. All of that to put three people right at the very tippy top there, that little triangular bit, that's where the people are. You know, the bulk, 80% of everything else is just fuel to get the thing off the ground. But it worked, and it took that wonderfully spindly comedy craft there so it could put this man on the moon to take pictures like this, which changed our perception of, of how we view the Earth forever. So it was an extraordinary achievement, challenge-driven. And this still happens today. You've seen Virgin Galactic is a lovely example of a competition challenge-driven thing. That's called the X Prize. So the cost of NASA putting a man on the moon, how many tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions probably, enormous. Cost of developing the Virgin Galactic ship, uh, the prize was relatively small. It was just a few million dollars. But it encouraged people to really have a go at this. And some incredible ideas were generated by making it into a competition. You might have seen Google talking a lot about these driverless cars. But again, a lot of that technology came from DARPA, this mysterious agency in the US, running a competition to say, who can build the best car to drive across the desert without any human intervention? So competitions are a very popular way of exciting engineers. And so I think we should actually get some of this done now. Now, I'm going to let you... <laughs> so I'm a humble, poor academic with no money. But imagine for a second I'm a billionaire and there's my yacht. As you can see, my yacht has a problem, obvious one, it has no helipad on it. I cannot land my helicopter. I've gone out and I've decided to buy a helicopter, and here it is. It's rather large for me and my extended family, but there it is. Okay, it's the model, obviously. Um, so what I need is a little bit of help. We're going to make it into a competition. I need four volunteers, preferably of a younger age disposition. So if you'd like to do something involving... Uh, cocktail sticks, jelly tots, and helicopters. Could we come up now, please? That's one. That's two, please. Three. And one more. We've got one? Excellent. Right, we've got one, two, three, four. Perfect. Oh, we have five. It's okay. Come on, we can have five. This is easy. Yes, even better. Right. So, is it possible to grab one more chair? Do come up. Come up on stage, please. Now, one at a time, could you please just stand here in a line? Very good, you can turn it, the lights are very bright. Okay, so come on here, please. So what's your name? Alec. Alec, and? Taya. Taya, and? Jonathan. Jonathan, and? Layla. Layla, and? Moana. Moana. Right, could you please come and sit down here? Any seat you like. And we're going to have a team of three and a team of two. There we go. I think... Yes, that's for you, that's for you. And I think if you could be in this team here. Right, all you have to do, it's very simple. 
This is a helipad, as you can see. It is not a placemat I've stolen from my wife. It is a helipad. Okay, so this is. What we need to do is to find... If you tried to land a helicopter on that boat, it wouldn't work. You'd smash into all the electronic stuff. So we need to build a helipad, which is slightly off the ground. Okay? So to do that, you've got nice, sharp, dangerous sticks, okay? And jelly tots. And what I want you to do is something like this. You get a jelly tot, and you get a stick, and you find a way to say, how could we get this off the ground? Yeah? What do you think? Another jelly tot there, excellent, and very good. What I might suggest is, I want you to think about is triangles and pyramids. And the competition is going to be, who can build the highest helipad, wait for it, that is strong enough and level enough to hold my helicopter. So if you build a wonky one, a very tall one that's wonky like this, my helicopter is going to fall off and I'd be very upset. If you can make it flat and high off the ground, that would be brilliant. It's only got to be that much off the ground. If you make it higher, that's even better. You have seven, six minutes to do it. Ready, steady, go. I really think pyramids are very, very good. Now, for you, you could watch this, these excellent young engineers at work here, but perhaps as a little background, I'm going to show you a video of something a little more complicated being assembled, okay? And it's a great video. I love this one. Oh, actually, that one's too short. This one is even better. Have I got the right one? Yeah, this is the one. Minor technical hitch. I pressed the button. There we go.
those of you familiar with airfix modeling, I think you'll appreciate this. This is a very nerve-wracking moment. It's the first time they've put it down under its own weight. Of course, for those who don't know about this, this what's extraordinary is that each bit is made by a different company in a different country. The fact it sticks together is a wonderful example of European harmony, uh, but it has to happen in France. Um, we'll, we'll see the British, the, the wings, part British, the engines coming now are coming from Rolls-Royce in Derby. That's the one we saw blow up, well, not the actual one blowing up, but again, just look at the size. And this is the man who puts... <laughs> the nut on the bolt that holds the engine onto the aeroplane. So you can see, very, very, very precisely done with lots of people watching going, you sure you're you sure about that? Another thing they have to do is, again, to reassure any nervous flyers, if all the systems fail, all the hydraulics, all that stuff fails, you've still got to be able to land the aircraft. So there has to be that the doors would drop open, the wheels would come down and lock into place. That's what they're doing here. They're just testing time and again, do the wheels drop out properly? And then coming up to one of my favorite bits, which is, well, you'll see. Something very satisfying about this. Isn't that lovely?
and to everybody's great relief, the Rolls-Royce engine's powered up, and it hopefully took off. And bang on time, our young engineers now have to demonstrate their technology. So, Team A, are you ready? Nearly. You're going for height or strength? Ah, okay, okay. <laughs> and here, right. So, we need to, um, you are the official adjudicators of airworthiness or safety worthiness of this. So here is the Sikorsky helicopter. I'm going to put it on here. It's, oh, that looks fantastic. Ready? Three, two, one. Hey, round of applause, please. Very, very good. Okay, uh, now you can fiddle with it once the judges have spoken. Right, let's have a go. Oh, 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 just hold it for a sec. Oh, I... now, round of applause, please. <laughs> what we saw there is a love. you see what was going on? They built the stable structure. Both teams tried to then go, we're going to build it higher, come on. And then they went, oh, it might fall down. Very sensibly went down lower. You chose slightly different technologies here. This was more squares, that was more triangles, but it, it very nearly worked. So I think you both deserve a little something. Now, the team who actually made it work, you can choose between chocolate or fruit. <laughs> chocolate? Got it, thought so, right. There we go. And team leader? You should be the team leader. There we go. Congratulations, well done. That's to be shared. <laughs> Percy Pig. Lovely. It's got fruit in it, but still quite nice, I think. There you go. Round of applause, please. It's for you. Please, can you share them? Right. Thank you very much. Can you go back to your seats, please? You can go back to your seat now. That's brilliant. Well done. Superb. Right. Just to wrap things up. Oh. I just want to close with a couple of things now, and those are as follows. So we've shown you these words, and we can talk about competitions, and things are done like this all the time. So this is the land speed record. This could have been the world's highest helipad, turned out to be the world's strongest helipad, and perhaps the world's most imaginative helipad. They were both good things. You see things like this happening. So this is uh, Dubai, with one building taken out. Look at the size of the skyscrapers there. If I just press this button, there's the Al Khalifa building. You think, good grief. So engineers really pushing the limits of what we saw here, pushing the limits as you did with the height of the helipad. And so there are nine of our words. We've got the idea of inventing, of doing, of improving, of sharing, of shaping, of building, of asking why, of saying oops a lot, and uh, responding to a challenge. But there is another word, the tenth word, which I think we should remember. And I think it goes back to this picture. I think those children actually had it right. I think engineers do fix things. But the thing they're fixing shouldn't be trains and cars. I think this is a thing that really, really needs fixing. So that's my tenth word. Tenth word is to fix stuff. It's not a, it's broken, oh dear, we should do something about that. This is an essential requirement. We need more young people going into engineering to solve the huge amount of problems we've got there. So what I've noticed is, the more of these talks I do, the slightly more positive the pictures become. So this was a picture drawn after we'd done one of our sessions like this with the, with the children. Look at the different features. The engineer is female. The engineer is presenting a very clever design for something brilliant to an adoring audience who are saying, well done, clap, clap, clap. 
However, I still think we've got a bit of work to do, because these are the other pictures I got back, which were, you've still got the man with the hammer and the spanner, but now he's got a 3D printer. <laughs> and maybe this is a bit, bit uh, overly English, but there he is, there is the space rocket, and what's the engineer do? Doing fixing the spaceship with a hammer. Okay, so kind of getting the message, but it's not quite getting it completely. So all I'm going to end with is to say I'm a bit of a fraud here, as I said. I haven't written a book. We haven't done anything that deserves for me to be here at all. But people occasionally say, perhaps we should write a book about this. So what we've started is we've set up a blog with lots of video clips and lots of stuff on it, as I said. You can access it from the information on the card in front of you. What I'd really like you to do, if you have just a few moments next time you're on the internet, go to that website and just click if you think, oh, there's one question, if you think we should write a book about this, do something about it, just click a yes or a no, that's it. So on that note, I'm going to draw this to a close and say thank you very, very much for your attention. Thank you. That's very kind, but uh, maybe you could just have the lights up. If there are any questions, I'm very happy to take them now. Any particular puzzles? Yes, please. Oh. You've talked about building in plastic. Yes. But that's becoming a commodity that's quite difficult to come by now. Or ah. is, is plastic is from oil, isn't it? It is. Well, this is a very, very important point. So some people have said this 3D... So the question there was about, oh, is this stuff made of plastic? Yes, it is. The 3D printing stuff, isn't that bad for the environment? Yes, it, absolutely. So this is the strange dilemma we're facing. It's good because you're not relying on factories overseas, containers, lots and lots of carbon, fossil fuel, burning ships going all around the world, bringing stuff that then isn't used and gets thrown away. So in some ways it's good because you're building just the thing you want right here without any transport costs. The negative is, as you say, you're actually encouraging people to produce more stuff because they'll just go, I'll print one of those, print one of those, print one of those. So it actually might have a negative effect as well. And, as you say, if it's all about um, uh, fossil fuel-based plastics, which are you know, non-biodegradable, that's not a good thing either. That's a really good point to make. And we're, we're struck with this dilemma at the moment. It's got a good and a bad side to it. Thank you. Any other final question? There's one at the back there. Yes, you, you, you did hear it. It may have been a dream as well, but it's also a fact. So this is very, very exciting stuff. You can not only use plastics and powdered metals, you can actually take living organisms and do things with it. So they've printed an ear, they've printed a liver, they're trying to print a pancreas, I think. Incredible things they can do, but it's still very, very much in the laboratory. So yes, that's in a whole other area. They're calling that side of things the functional materials. You don't just print an object that, for its looks, you print it for its ability to do something. There was maybe one more, perhaps. Thank you for a most stimulating 50 minutes. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd just like to take exception to the first word. I don't think we, we as engineers invent, we innovate. And, ah. we, and if, we, if we changed it from, we're we have ingenuity, and if you change it from engineer to engineer, it may actually have, help our, our cause. I think it's a great point, and there is this fear that if we constantly think about invention, invention implies you've just thought of it and then you've stopped. So to me, innovation is the invent and the do bit put together. So I think if we can find that better word, that's a really good point. Somebody's been very patiently waiting here. I'm wondering about 
including the word design. My son is an automotive design engineer. Ah, yes. This is a... Ah, now I've got you in a room. Lock the doors, please. Um, <laughs> one of the biggest battles we face with this idea of engineering is, what does it actually mean? So the designers will say... When I describe this, they'll go, well, that's design. Everything you've described there is the process of designing things. A good designer goes all the way through to make sure the thing works and does what it's supposed to do. Uh, and so we can have lots of discussions in the Royal Academy of Engineering and the IET and the IMEC-E and the this and the that are all debating about defining these terms and actually trying to come up with a title of engineer. This is useful discussion to have, but it can be a bit self-defeating sometimes because we spend all our time arguing about which category do you fit into. We're more interested in saying people should be interested in the idea of engineering. Whether it's called design or not, I don't think matters perhaps too much. But we should be encouraging people to be designers, to be design engineers, to be engineers. But if I may, just to end on one picture, what's fascinating is, that, is it just a linguistic problem? The word engineer is guy from BT who turns up to install your broadband, he's an engineer bloke who designs iPad, he's an engineer. Well, hang on a minute, I think there's rather different jobs there, both important but different. So we're doing a fun bit of work at the moment, which is the same exercise with the little pictures, but we're doing it in different countries. So we're, going to do, we're having it done in China, Japan, Germany, the US, and we've just had the results back from Italy. Okay, and this, again, I, I don't know what to expect, and I, of course, have cherry-picked a couple of pictures here. There's one, okay. So this was... Uh, a girl at primary school, and she said, they had a slightly different question. The question was, please draw an engineer, and then please draw an engineer doing engineering work. So here is the engineer, and she's at a ball with a very glamorous, looking very glamorous with the gown and the handbag and the drink and everything. And here is the engineer at work, still looking very glamorous, working at her desk. And you go, ah, so the Italians clearly have a, it's an image of a professional thing that's kind of gender neutral. And then I saw some other pictures from the Italians, which is the bloke there fixing a broken car. <laughs> So there's actually lots going on here to do with the linguistics, the society, all sorts of stuff going on. I don't want to get too um, bogged down in the details of what precisely we mean by an engineer. I think it's perhaps more important that we just get on and get more people realising that engineering is not only great fun, but very, very important as well. And I can see the clock ticking down to zero, where I'm told a trap door opens and it gets to zero. So I think I must stop there and just say once again, thank you very much. Thank you.